Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Good morning, Dr. Rapici. How are you today? No, Dr. Falk, I am good. full of beans. Good. I'm feeling full of good. beans. I'm We're going to continue that. Uh, I'd like to think it's a Southern vernacular, but I don't know it is, if it is actually. I, went, I feel like it should be our, British. Our, li- our listeners, such as they are. Um, if you too <laughs> are full of beans, <laughs> let us know where the beans came from. Yeah, Anyways. No, that previous came from yes your question i'm doing well how are you i'm doing well as well and we're here today um to talk about uh, jean baudrillard's 1981 1982 written somewhere at the end of the late 70s published in the early 80s his essay the precession of simulacra which was part of his book on simulacra and simulations and where he introduces a concept that's really important for media studies and we're going to talk about it today and uh, i think uh, what's that concept the concept is the notion of the hyper real and we're going to explain more about what that means in a moment but we should also give a brief preview that not only uh, baudrillard is going to be a little bit of our um he's a platform he's a node uh, a launch point or two things. Number one, first and foremost, after our discussion of this particular essay, the first chapter of the Simulacra and Simulation book, uh, we eventually are going to talk about how this connects with our modern idea of the hyperreal um, in, as evidenced in AI. So that's one of the things we're going. But I think we should also say this, Michael, and we didn't talk about this off camera, so this is totally, this is totally going to floor you, my friend. No, it's right. not. Um, no, it's not. But um, I uh, was thinking of this conversation. The impetus for—I mean, I think it's worth saying—the impetus for talking about Baudrillard is that we have been talking about for at least two episodes. We have been talking about simulated environments in certain respects or not. In a way, we've been talking about three examples of simulated environments. And if you go back to De Boer, there are four examples of simulated environments. But just to think about the last two episodes, um, we talked about Susan Sontag mm-hmm. uh, and her argument that we tend to equate the real, whatever it is, um, uh, with photography with mm-hmm. a photographic image. So that is one sort of hyper reality, one kind of simulated reality that we treat in exchange, you know, interchangeably with reality. Uh, and of course, behind Sontag's version of this photographic simulacra, there was Plato, right? There was the, you know, Plato, Platonic image at the very beginning of philosophy. There was Plato's um, concern about the nature of, what we see in its relation to knowledge uh, as evidence in Plato's cave. And then more recently, and I think in our last episode that posted, we talked about Andrew Andre Bazan and his uh, theory of photography. Now, of course, as we also said, Bazan is talking about photographs because he's more interested in he's interested in the larger question of aesthetic realism and he's particularly interested in aesthetic realism insofar as it relates to cinema so he has a very different trajectory from sontag even though she mentions film in her study of photography but she he makes some remarks that were well a kind of prepare us and got us thinking about the hyperreal mm-hmm. because he also feel and, and in fact this is something um, I don't recall this, Michael. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall this clearly stated in, in Plato's Cave in the Sontag chapter we discussed. But it is um, a really brilliant insight that Bazan captures in his capsule history photography. This observation that one of the reasons, you know, he all, he makes the basic claim that Sontag does, that um, there is a way photography is an epical event in the history of the arts, plastic arts, as he says, because of its unique ability to stand in for reality, its unique re- relation to the real. Um, and then he makes this point that I don't think Sontag makes quite as clearly. One of the reasons, he says, that we trust the photographic image so much, uh, intuitively. And he even says, like Sontag, 
he, he questions our credibility on this part. But nonetheless, he says, the fact that photographic images are the product of a mechanical process. That's one of the reasons why we tend to trust them so totally, why they seem to offer a better relation to the real than any kind of painting. Because painting, no matter what, no matter how advanced, no matter how complex, regardless of the cultural context, um, it will always be the product of the human hand. And therefore, in our own minds, perhaps somewhat suspect to what machines can do. Yeah. So all this, I, I didn't mean to do the long preamble, but but I think it's kind of helpful. I hope it's kind of helpful, simply because when we talk about Baudrillard today, it's in this context, what drew us to the text, and what we're talking about today, we're not only thinking about AI, but we have some of these larger aesthetic mm -hmm. philosophical questions in our head, all yeah. floating around here in the suit. I actually want to sort of look at that just again real quickly before we start talking about Baudrillard, because I think that Plato, then Sontag, then Bazin really give us, uh, if, if you look at the three of them uh, together, not in terms of necessarily who's making what argument, but the 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 you know those three arguments laid next to each other give us a good grounding for why Baudrillard is important, right? So if if you think about the the allegory of the cave with Plato, one of the things that's I mean, there's a lot going on there, obviously, but one of the 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 basic tenets of that is, hey, we can misunderstand what we see as being something else we can misunderstand uh you know one representation that may be real as a fiction or a fiction for reality right so and so that's 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 there's your you know plato in and six one seconds. Can, and one is able to escape it with that realization for plato there's a but but escape right but again escaping it is going to put you outside it's going to absolutely you outside, absolutely right sontag's argument was that we look at photographs and we don't see the artifice in the photography. Right. We see the image and we immediately equate that image or associate that image with a real moment, right. whatever real means. With, let me add something to that because it's important. One of the reasons why that's bad, what you said, according mm -hmm. to Sontag, is that our apprehension of the real in the photograph, and this is one of her points in, in Plato's Cave, one of the reasons why that's wrong is that it's a quick equation of the real that is detached from narrative mm -hmm. context history right so that we we're making a mistake because we too quickly rush to the idea that the image has presented as a truth that is somehow uh outside of history conversation things like that right and and, and the fact that let, let's let context. the fact that we're off script not be lost here at, at all right because another interesting thing implicit in that argument is this notion of speed and how quickly we move absolutely to, to interpret but so you have, you have sontag's argument and she's saying you know to be clear to, to reiterate what you were saying there this is wrong right like the image right. that we see is not representative of an actual event it is a creative moment it is it is it, it, it's, it's art which gets us to bazin where he's basically saying photography frees art to be art painting to, to be, be art. art his argument is that the mechanical aspects of photography that differentiate it from painting i.e no artist and brush this is a chemical reaction that takes place um lead us to look at photography as being authentic or real my point in laying these out is that each of these perspectives plato sontag bazin give us a very clear platform on which to stand if we're going to say, hey, the notion of reality is a slippery one, right? What is real is very, very tricky to try and pin down. And so I think by means or as a means of getting into our discussion today, I am going to attempt with your permission, a quick, quick, quick gloss of um, Baudrillard so that we can talk about him with a few things just set on the table for us. So the argument in a nutshell is that we are not able to distinguish between reality and um, the sort of representations of reality that we get. And he starts out with the, 
the story of the map that is so precisely drawn and to scale that it overlays the original <laughs> and in time the two become indistinguishable and then he goes on to say that we've reached a point essentially where the map precedes the real right that we have reached a point where our simulations our maps actually come before the reality mm -hmm. and I, I, i'm assuming that is the procession of the simulacra so the argument here is that in the maps creating their own reality because they precede our understanding of reality. And I think the easiest way of looking at this is um, we could go back to Williams, for example, with his discussion about the um, uh, inventions being, you know, the, these things that are suddenly new and everything, everything is invented for a specific reason. And then we come to see them as being solutions to other problems. Mm -hmm. um, Baudrillard is basically saying that that's what's happening, right? We're getting our, our maps and then we're finding uses for them. The real exists after the map has already been laid down. Um, so his term for this. So, is the, that, so just to add a sentence to that. So one of the, one of the, one of the, the logical conclusions that, or one of the arguments that he makes that logically follows from what you said is the question of priority because mm -hmm. of this quick relay it becomes impossible to distinguish the prior map to the ter you know which is prior the map or the territory becomes impossible to distinguish. exactly exactly and so his he calls this you know the the hyper real okay so that that's his term we're going to probably be revisiting it often the problem is right that the hyper real is indistinguishable from the real the simulation is so accurate that it becomes indistinguishable from the real. And so the at the core of this, or one of the things at the core of this, is that the inability to distinguish the real and the simulation ultimately undermines the real, right? That we, we, we have to question whatever it is uh, that we think of as real because we can never know whether it's a simulation or whether it is whatever thing would be authentic. And the problem comes into being here because all things can be simulated. So right. we're left with this sort of existential crisis, if you will, of what's real and what's not. And anything that could be real has to be questioned. And so um, he- Can offers, I interrupt you right there? Just only, only, only to, I'm not going to add anything to what you said, but I just, I think this might be a good place to very quickly read a passage from Baudrillard that directly is pertinent to what you've said. So this is whatever PDF one steals from uh, Google. Um, this is about three paragraphs into it, the passage I'm gonna read very briefly. This is, I think, Michael, what you were just speaking about directly, uh, or this passage is directly pertinent to what you were just speaking about. The real is produced for miniaturized cells, matrices, and memory banks, models of control. And it can be reproduced an indefinite number of times from these. So this is sort of talking about the, the fact that the map, one of the advantages of making the map is that you can make many copies of the right, map, right? And then going on from there, it's the points very directly related to what you just discoursed on. It no longer needs to be rational because it no longer measures itself against either an ideal or a negative case, a negative instance. It is no longer anything but operate. I love this phrase mm -hmm. because of that verb. It is no longer anything but operational. I don't know if that's a verb, actually. That's an adverb, right? What is operational? I don't know. I'm an English professor. I should know. Don't know. But I love that word, operational. In fact, it is no longer really the real because no imaginary envelopes it anymore. In other words, it's to have the real, you have to have an imaginary as an envelope. We no longer have that strict demarcation between the real and the imaginary that allows for both to exist. Instead, we have, quote, final sentence, it is, no, it is now the hyperreal produced from a synthesis of combinatory models in a hyperspace without atmosphere. In other words, it's only referring to itself. The hyperreal is its own thing, and it no longer exists in reference to the real or the imaginary. Right, because it essentially dissolves the real. 
because so, it dissolves. It. So I, I think the the thing is that if I'm reading your reading of this correct, what he's basically saying here is that the hyperreal essentially dissolves the real because of its uh, what's the word I want to use here? Because of its precision, because of its and the imaginary. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, and also the imaginary. So that one can't simply say, "Well, uh, there is this." This is a you ha to have the, those two concepts. I guess this is a Hegel thing. To have those two concepts, you have to. I don't know. You need one of you need the negation of the concept to have the concept work in both cases. And what the hyperreal does is it gets rid of the negation. There's no third term. It just envelopes them without producing a synthesis. Mm -hmm. They right. no longer contain a negation. Right. And I think that the, the argument in that, right, is that we need difference. We need one to have yeah, the other, yeah. right? This yeah, is right. you got to have evil to have good. You got to have up to have down, whatever. The, the problem with the hyperreal is that because the division that gives meaning to both is gone, mm -hmm we don't really have any sense of meaning one way or another. And there's a couple different examples. So the two that, that we're going to talk about, he talks about Disney uh, in, in ways that, you know, D Disney and nostalgia in a sense, in terms of, you know, what, what, what's going on. He uses Disney as an example of how this works. And the other one that I found really interesting, he talks about Watergate and it's not a question of, you know, what is Watergate? Who did the, 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 the thing about Watergate that I think is really interesting is he talks about the scandal of Watergate as, and, and the more, and the outrage that surrounds it as a mechanism for creating and same with Disney, really these mechanisms for creating a false divide, right? Where the idea of the real and the simulated you know the simulation we, where we think we can see this difference Baudrillard does a really interesting job of identifying these moments where what we think of as difference really just sort of fold back in on onto each other um so should we start with with disney let's do that i should say i just googled it used ai for a moment because i you know as an english professor i would get my license revoked it is a question about operational whether it's a noun, verb, or an adjective, but Google says it's an it's an adjective. Just telling you, just letting everyone know. I, I feel like um, I know you're ready to go now. Yeah, We're as an ready. English to person go. myself, I feel like I can sleep now. Um, so let's talk about Disney. Um, the argument that he's making about Disney, and we'll start at a fairly high level here and dig down as as we feel necessary, Barry. Disney is a fiction, right? We go into Disney and we see this ideal sort of fantasy land. And in understanding, and, and you know, I, I guess there's a series of liminal spaces between, right? Like we have the world outside of Disney. We have the parking lot, which sort of buffers the fiction that is Disney with the real world outside of Disney. But his point is right. that when we go into Disneyland, we recognize that we are in a space Right, defined by a parking lot that separates us from the outside of Disney. That We're is inside Disney when we enter Disneyland. That's right. one of them. And in being in Disney. Right. Right. And any I think anybody who's been to a theme park understands, right? There's a real difference between being in the park and being yeah. out of the park. And his point is that when you're in the park, you recognize that you are in a fiction. And that being in this fiction creates the impression that life outside of the fiction i.e real los angeles is, is the opposite is negation is the negation right this is the hegelian negation right the negation reality it's in los angeles right mm -hmm. so los angeles is the you know by definition by this kind of definition through negation ends up representing the real because disneyland is obviously the realm of illusion and fantasy in play. Right. I'm, I mean, actually, I have the section here. I kind of want to please to read this. And so um, Disneyland exists in order to hide that it is the real country, all of real America, that is Disneyland. Mm -hmm. A bit like prisons are there to hide that it is in the social in its entirety, in its banal omnipresence that is carceral. 
Disneyland is presented as imaginary in order to make us believe that the rest is real, whereas all of Los Angeles and the America that surrounds it are no longer real, but belong to the hyperreal in or, or belong to the hyperreal order and to the order of simulation. It is no longer a question of a false representation of reality, but of concealing the fact that the real is no longer real and thus of saving the reality principle. The imagery the imaginary of Disneyland is neither true nor false. It is a deterrence machine set up in order to rejuvenate the fiction of the real in the opposite camp. That is a mouthful. And I'm going to be honest with you. One of the things that I struggled with as I went through this again was the urge to just call this. Can I swear? Uh, can we now? Cause we're not on YouTube. I just want to call it bullshit. Yeah. I want to sit here and say, how is it possible that you're going to say the city of Los Angeles is face as false? So let, let's start here. How do we want to unpack this? I, I want to run from this because I have, <laughs> I want to run from this because I, I, you know, as you were reading it, Michael, I, I have the same quibble. So I'm going to try and make it, I'm going to try and do an interpretation here. You know, one of the businesses of interpretation is to uh, think about the beginnings of interpretation um, in Neoplatonic commentary or biblical commentary. One of the reasons you you have an interpretation of a text to begin with is because you have a problem with that text, especially the literal meaning of the text. It's a passage that's always troubled me. And I'm going to speak for it positively, and then I'm going to speak for it negatively. And you'll help me make more sense out of it and my interpretation. Okay, let me give you the positive spin on this. As a thought experiment, the examples of Disneyland and Watergate, I know you want to talk about the Watergate example, think they're really, really, really powerful. And I understand totally why this is a generative essay. In that, um, what's really powerful about this? As a thought experiment, it's great. Because it gets, it captures that that way of formulating, perfectly captures a kind of brilliant insight, which is that the the difference between that. Well, I'm going to quote William Blake. William Blake says uh, in the in the poem, "Is it London? Prisons are made out of bricks of religion, or no? Brothels are built out of bricks of religion. Prisons." are built out of order. You know, that poetic insight that order, purity, cleanse, cleanse, you know, cleanliness, morality requires its other. And in fact, the relation between say morality and immorality can, you know, it's, it's symbiotic. It's not even an opposition. It's symbiotic. One needs the moral tres, tre, uh, moral prohibition against prostitution to create the institution prostitution. I think that you know that's that's what I take Baudrillard to be doing here when he makes a distinction between Disneyland and Los Angeles. And so, in other words, he's saying this is not a strict opposition. In our real life, in our waking moments, we treat this as a strict opposition. But the reality is that this is a symbiotic. The reality, quote unquote, is that this is a symbiotic reality. There's a symbiosis going on here. There's a synergy between the prohibition and the moral, the moral prohibition and the quote unquote transgression. So, and, and in making this formulation, uh, he captures and he goes on to say, as you know, he goes on to say, think about it, L.A. How is it? so? LA is your real? Think about LA. It's land of Hollywood. There are theme parks besides Disneyland outside, but also outside of Disneyland, but also in LA. Um, where is this much vaunted real that you're talking about when you say there's a fantasy land over here and then there's reality out there? So this is the positive version uh, this is the positive insight, and it's a great insight. It's a poetic insight. It's a brilliant metaphor. Um, and it, if I like William Blake, I got to like Jean Baudrillard. So as a thought experiment, it's unparalleled, I think, in its precision. And more, more than that, it's beauty. Here's what I don't like about it. What I don't like about it 
is that if one lingers in that moment, in that insight, one, I think, I and I think, you know, my reservation, I won't speak for you, but because I'm going to allow you to speak for you and your reservation, but my reservation is that uh, once you get out of the realm of metaphor, um, I worry that if you insist on, it's all Disneyland, that you are missing the fact that we are complicit in creating the bad reality that, you know, he makes the opposition. He makes our confused perception of hyper-reality seem natural. When I think the point is we are complicit in creating this boundary that doesn't exist between Disneyland and reality. And insofar as Baudrillard's uh, wonderful eloquence makes us forget that we are complicit in creating the opposition between, in creating reality and the imaginary, in making that out of a hyperreal, insofar as we do that, uh, is that he encourages us to do that. I think um, it's not good. I So as I think about this, I think that the problem and the thing that I responded to with this and the thing maybe that you respond to, I think a lot of people that read this are going to look at this and call bullshit. It's important to notice or note, excuse me, that, Baudrillard's argument, right, is not a materialist argument. He's not arguing exactly. Exactly. the city's not right. real, okay? Right. Um, right. You know, he. I think in a way what, what he's arguing, and I'm, I'm going to probably do a couple things here that you're not going to like, Barry, so. That's okay. I apologize ahead of hand. But I like, I, I think how is that possible? How is that he, possible? He's saying that our structures this maybe it's a structuralist argument right that the things that we understand to function in one way um don't and so you know you look at so the thing that popped in my mind as i'm looking at this obviously i i foresee this as a materialist argument i say well how are you going to tell me that lawyers aren't lawyers teachers aren't teachers well the argument i think that he's making is that well your lawyers are lawyers but the law is this institution that can be bent and shifted depending on how you want to see it. The teachers are teaching and simultaneously indoctrinating and simultaneously, um, you know, encouraging this, like there's, there's a million different ways to see it. And so the thing that got to me and uh, about this, as I was trying to make sense of it is, um, and here's where my apology comes in. I thought of Bruno Latour. And I thought of, you know, what he called with actor network theory and what he calls the black box, right? The idea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that a network functions in a way that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And it's only when we, you know, lift the hood of the car, for example, that we see all of the different components of the car that work. And mm-hmm. the thing, and so it ceases to become a car. It's now a series of networks that combine to create a car in this moment and I think that when you look at something like this, you realize that all of these different networks are continually, infinitely divisible, right? And so mm-hmm. the notion of a stable, consistent reality that is a city that does this or an institution that oh, does that is going to be divisible and continually reconfigured. And it's not so much that any one moment is false it's that these are replicated in a million different ways right there are facsimiles of this exact same thing everywhere but they're also capable of being different things and so to try and pin it down and say well you know los angeles is this it is, but it isn't. And there's no way of knowing for certain. And that's his argument, right? It's not so much that it's a fiction. Okay. It's mm. that it is a simulation of something that is continually that's, being reinvented. That's and so um, I, I mentioned this, I think I wanted to get Latour into the conversation a little bit mm-hmm. um, because I like to do that, but also because I kind of want to jump forward to Watergate because- okay he does something different. Well, he, he says, and I, I've got my... Before you do that, can yeah. we put a period? I want to put a period in what you were saying. First mm-hmm. off, I want to say, thank you for bringing up network theory. That's a better example than than my example, I think. Uh, so um, 
I, I really appreciate you do it. I think that's much more clarifying when I said. Uh, so I think you're setting us up well. Also, I, just before we go on, since I'm making all these uh, very unpardonable uh, English major mistakes, let me try to clarify them in the. Is this could be this is the grammar episode. This is the grammar episode because I was quoting William Blake and misattributing it and and butchering it and totally got it wrong. It's not from one of his poems. What I was quoting, but it's helpful. It's helpful uh, to know that it's helpful to know the truth. We'll say. Uh, and to be thing. somewhat, yeah, if there is one, and if there's, well, accuracy is important. Let's not talk about truth. So uh, what I was quoting was the Proverbs of Hell from the Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake. And here were the passages that I had in mind. There, There is a twinned uh, proverb of hell, uh, and it goes like this. Prisons are built, and I'm going to relate this to to uh, try to do this quickly. I'm going to try to relate this to Latour and sort of talk about the difference between our two takes on Disneyland. Um, so Blake writes, prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. So to try, so that's the Blake quote. And why I was quoting that or trying to remember that passage is because I thought, that Baudrillard's point, or I think one of the things he's getting at, is he wants us to do away with the idea that prisons are one thing, law is another. Brothels are one thing. Morality and moral codes are another. He wants to talk about their synergy. Now, that said, I prefer what you said to what my example, because I think what you are getting at in your answer, and let's see how this I don't think this is that much of a digression, Michael, because I think it's going to clarify some when we get to Watergate. Mm -hmm. Because what I like about what you just said about Disneyland and using Latour is that you are getting out of the metaphor and you are saying, let's not think about this in linguistic terms. Let's think of this as a kind of a network. And if we think of the simulation, we think of all these things, the real, the imaginary, simulacra, we think of all this as moments within the network as something, what was the word you used? Well, Did you I, talk about it? Like at, at different moments, you're accessing something very well, different. I, 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 I the think, network metaphor is really helpful. Yeah. And I, I think, think what just to, to I, I think of a network as sort of uh, as a, as a means of interpretation, right? Like Good. It, okay. it's through our understanding of a network that we can say, Oh, this means this. I like it. Um, so, shall we jump to Watergate? Because really, yeah, 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 yeah. We should, but I hope that was clarifying because I think I got us in muddy waters, and you helped us get out of there. And now I think we're well. Let's back just on. let's just muddy this right up. Then let's muddy it again. Fortunately, the the section Watergate, um, Baudrillard says Watergate. The same scenario is Disneyland. So he's saying that Watergate is exactly it. the same. And let's I'm gonna, hear it. Th this is this is a little bit of reading. I'm going to try and do this clearly. But he says Watergate, the same scenario as Disneyland effect of the imaginary concealing that reality no more exists outside than inside the limits of the artificial perimeter. Um, he says uh, here, the scandal effect hiding that there is no difference between the facts and their denunciation, identical methods on the part of the CIA and of the Washington post journalists. I'm going to skip down a little bit. he says capital immoral and without scruples can only function behind a moral superstructure. So again, we've got the two different sides that give each other meaning. Uh, right. So capital, immoral, without scruples can only function behind a moral superstructure. And whoever revives this public morality through indignation, denunciation, et cetera, works spontaneously for the order of capital. This is what the journalists of the Washington Post did. But this would be nothing <laughs> but the formula of ideology. And when Bordeaux states it, he takes the relation of force for the truth of capitalist domination and he himself denounces this relation of force as scandal. He is thus in the same deterministic and moralistic position of the Washington Post journalists are. He does the same work of purging and reviving moral order, an order of truth in which the veritable symbolic violence of the social order is engendered, well beyond all the relations of force, which are only its shifting and indifferent configuration in the moral and political consciences of men. He goes on to argue essentially that, and I'm not going to read the whole thing though, it's fantastic. He goes on to argue essentially 
that it is the moral outrage that mm -hmm. we feel that mm -hmm. functions as that thing that is different, which lets us look at our world as different from this moral outrage mm -hmm. and therefore as real. So in other words, moral outrage and Disneyland are the same thing, right? That our regular non-abused sense of right and wrong is Los Angeles. This is a wonderful sort of uh, what's the juxtaposition here of Disneyland and, and, and morality, right? Like, <clears throat> so um, do we see a difference in the way these two play out? Uh, I have two comments. Is this a good time to make them or did you want to? Yeah, no, by all means. Okay. Uh, two comments where I, and I'm, I'm going to continue maybe in my same vein. Good. Well, you should, it's the same argument. <laughs> well, uh, in my same vein of saying something negative about Jean Baudrillard and then saying something positive and the positive thing I'm going to end with that because I think from what we were talking about earlier, the positive thing is where we need to go to bring this boat into dock. Because if we go on this positive argument, we're going to, I think, end up exploring something that's going to relate to AI. But I, I you know, since you mentioned um, the first part of that quote, uh, I can't go with him on that first okay. part of the quote that you read. And I'll tell you why. Because that's precisely what I don't like about Baudrillard. Because what he's saying is that it doesn't matter whether or not you're doing a conservative argument or as uh, Bourdieu is doing a, uh, a negative argument, a Marxist argument. Doesn't, you know, critique is impossible because you're not allowed to have a critical position because the, hype, the, the function of, functionality of hyperreality is that any kind of criticism of the system any kind of moral critique is sort of out of, uh, um, I don't know, invalid, necessarily invalidated by the hyper real. It may be, but I would actually think that, you know, I don't want to give up that idea of making criticism. So that's the negative that, part. Huh? Yeah, I want please. to ask you a question about that. Um, the, the, and I guess we don't He's saying that Bob, I mean, if I understand, yeah, he's saying that the Watergate reporters and the Marxist critics uh, are alike in that they are still that Marxism is still a kind of morality. It wants to talk about the problems of domination and say that domination is bad mm -hmm. and that both the both the liberal critique and the Marxist critique are bad because they're both critiques and there's no possibility of critique of the hyperreal. I'm going to I'm going to shoot myself if I give up critique. It's a but you don't essential have, but see, matter the for thing. me. You don't have there, to. There is a positive side to this when you're talking about the now where you went to from that. Mm -hmm. And I know where you want to go to is you want to talk about the productivity of moral outrage. That to me is a separate thing. I'm just trying to and maybe I can't really do this. And maybe I just have to forswear Baudrillard. But I'm just saying I, I cannot give up. I, I cannot be as glib and blasé as I think Baudrillard is being in saying that, well, you know what? The Marxist criticism is the same thing as the liberal criticism. There is no difference because it's the hyper real. I can't I can't abide that. But see, I don't I don't I don't know that it works like that, because so, for example, you just said, well, the, the, the productivity of moral outrage. Right. Yes, indeed. What is the productivity of moral outrage other than a fiction? It, it is. And that's an interesting thing to talk about. But I want to talk about it as a fiction, my friend. Well, you have. And to. he is saying he is saying I can't. No, and no, that's no, no, where no, I no. don't want him to say that. I don't that's think so. I, that's where I, I, I don't go along. Barry, I'm going to politely disagree with you. Well, I think the point, the point of this <laughs> is that we perceive something as moral indignation, as moral indignation. He's saying it's all a smokescreen, right? That, that, that the moral indignation is no more real than the parking lot of Disneyland. It's simply something that we perceive to be a barrier between one fiction and another fiction, right? That there's, your, your, you don't have to give up theory, Barry. The truth of the matter is you never had theory in the first place, but yeah, what yeah, we yeah, do, yeah. what we do, what yeah. we're doing now, right? Yeah. Is, 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 yeah. is, 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 is pretending. And we're pretending because yeah. we don't know any better. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I have it's existential like, as, as, I mean, as, all I'm saying, Michael, is I, I, I got you. I got you. I got, I got him. But it's, I have existential. I'm just registering my existential qualms because I, I, I wouldn't be doing this if I but, really believe so, that. Here, I wouldn't Randy, be doing is, it. This is going to be, be awkward. But this is why you don't leave Plato's cave. What? Because when you leave the cave, you have yes. to have existential qualms about it. And then you're going to get over them and you're going to come back down and we're going to call you a raving lunatic. <laughs> All right. All right. I think, okay, we, we're not going to solve the, the existential problem. Let's well, go can't. to the moral quandary. Let's go to the moral productivity thing. You were about to go there. Let's go there. That's the positive thing because what he's saying, if I understand you, so that we just talked about and we went round and round on the negative thing, and Michael's never going to cure me for this. I'm incurable. Um, but the thing that I think is really interesting and that I want to think about along mm -hmm. with you mm -hmm. is where you are getting at with this. You are noticing the productivity, as you call it, and as he calls it, of mm -hmm. a fiction. And the fiction is moral outrage that's occasioned by the production, by the particular moment in the network of production that creates the simulacra, that creates the hyperreal. Uh, and that his argument, and I think your argument, and I think I agree with this argument, is that there inevitably is this moral outrage that can accompany the latest incarnation or avatar of the simulacra, of the hyperreal. But that this hype, but that this moral discourse, this outrage is really a fiction. It's a discourse that keeps us, that in, indeed feeds the hyperreal. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing that in AI, but you want to say a little bit more about how it relates to Watergate or do you? No, or I just Vietnam think that, or do you? so the, the purpose, right, of, of the out. Did I summarize, you know, where you're going with that? Oh, well, or, or did I do that poorly? How, no, I think, how you... I, I think you did it fantastically. I just think that one of my character flaws is that I need to restate it again so that I can have my my words in my head. Well, as well. I, I would find that helpful if you did. So, so, please. so I, I think that the, the purpose of moral outrage is okay. to it is. And again, these are all fictions, right? The purpose of moral outrage is to feed the sense of, and I don't know if this is the right word to use, but if I'm on the spot, it's to feed a sense, it's to feed nostalgia. It's to feed a desire to return to a normal. He uses right? that word. I think you're very right to use that. He uses, Baudrillard uses the word nostalgia. Mm -hmm. That's part of this moral, the moral discourse seems to be very closely allied to the production of nostalgia affect as so, an affect. So here's here's what's interesting about this, this idea of a return to normal. And I think that as we inch closer to this discussion of AI, it's probably helpful to sort of start to apply this stuff to things that are more you know readily apprehendable, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the political situation that we have, you can have any given moment of outrage, right? As polarized mm -hmm. as politics are, mm -hmm. in any moment of outrage, the two camps are going to both seize upon that moment, agree that there is an outrage, mm -hmm. and then run with that outrage in opposite directions. And, produ and produce effects out of right. that affect. And one of Baudrillard's arguments of, yeah. is that in war the two warring sides are actually complicit in eventually reaching yes. a predetermined yes. outcome, yes. predetermined outcome. And that these two sides need each other. Yes. Right. Yes. And so this is, and, and so, you know, if, if you think about this and just distill it for a second, how can you have two opposing ideological positions quabbling, quibbling, English words are hard, right? Quabbling. Well, I butchered William Blake and don't understand how to identify noun verbs. Well, so, there we go. Yeah. Um, two different sides. <laughs> I'm ahead or right? behind. You're, we're not done. Um, <laughs> two, two different sides quabbling over an agreed upon outrage. Th these have to be, th th you know, we started at the beginning by saying reality is slippery, right? Mm -hmm. th this, this is the slipperiness that you and I can be on opposite sides of the fence. Agree that there is a problem, reach drastically different ends about it. And, and then what, still, and and, but that only serves yeah, to perpetuate yeah. this reality yeah. 
that we both want to come back to. If right. we reinvoke Latour, the difference is that you see these situations as configuring one particular networked reality. Right. And I'm going right. to see them as producing a right. very different one. They're the same. Great point. Great point. That's the positive uh, side of this argument. I mean, I mean, to me, that's the great value of what Baudrillard is doing, that he allows us to apprehend what you just said. That's really wonderful. Should we shift to an example of AI? And see whether or not, this, or, or are we ready for that? Let's boldly we shift go. to an example of AI and see how that fits with the what you just mentioned. I guess the two or three things that you just brought up. The idea of the productivity of moral outrage. Mm -hmm. The idea of polarities of opinion, of political opinions and moral opinions. Uh, reinforcing, working to reinforce the precession of simulacra, mm -hmm. keeping us within the hyperreal or sustaining the hyperreal. And okay, well, that's that's enough. Uh, and then we can think about how AI works and see if we can connect. So when we talk about AI, just to make sure you and I are on the, the same page here, are we talking? Sure. Well, you wanted to talk about, I don't think we have enough time this episode. I'm sure we'll be able to do it. <clears throat> talk about the music i've been thinking a lot about because i've been hearing a lot about yeah uh musical examples and we read a great uh, michael and i read a great article by dina latovsky Dina latovsky where she talks about ai and ai and uh photography mm -hmm. but i don't think we have time to talk about those um those those manifestations of ai and probably because of the discussion we've been having and we've just had, I think, Michael, we should turn to your example of ChatGPT AI and in, in terms of ChatGPT and writing, writing mm -hmm. modes and structural writing. And maybe we can write that one out here, write that sure. out. So the, the, I guess the discussion centers around the, the, you know, rapid, visibility and advent of chat gpt as a writing tool and english teachers and writing teachers everywhere <clears throat> freaking out moral moral indignation here if you will this is this is the pedagogical version of watergate and disney right that this is massively upsetting we have a huge disruption and if we apply this to baudrillard as we are looking at it now somehow we have to be able to say it's all the same that this massive disruption essentially is a smokescreen where the return to normal is not a return and the departure was never a departure right like this is all uh smoke and mirrors and well well let's break i think it will help uh clarify your example if we temporalize it because okay. we were talking about this, like you were saying, uh, you said very interestingly in our pre-show show, you were saying that there's a kind of nostalgia, again, again, we're talking about the effect, rhetorical effect of certain discourses. So the discourse over ChatGPT kind of creates a nostalgia for a time when people write, <laughs> when people wrote authentically. And when people were doing their own summaries. Now, that's not to say we're bracketing off now. This is the thing that was getting me upset earlier. But I do think for you advance the science, you advance the argument. If you can do a moral bracketing off, at least in this moment. Sure. Let's bracket off the question about whether or not it's good or positive or bad mm -hmm. to have ch to introduce ChatGPT ch ChatGPT into writing instru into instructional writing systems. What we do see, what I think Baudrillard does allow us to see, is that there is a discourse that surrounds these things that has its own structure and kind of its own momentum. So that, that as a consequence of the way in which we discuss it, that you know very soon. As soon as you do the engage in the, this chat GPT discourse, insofar as it relates to writing, you're you're kind of 
you have to think of it, you, you're almost, the, the people who oppose ChatGPT have to make the claim, you know, are find themselves making the position that it was better before this new right. technology right. was. And as you were saying earlier, to sort of bring this to a close, um, or my my summary of this to a close, and I want to hear what what you want to add to it. As you said earlier, uh, we're nostalgic for a moment that never existed, because twenty because the truth is, as you were saying, also we've outsourced to AI a lot of our argument, the weather, weather mm -hmm. forecasting, uh, questions and answers, knowledge production. We've mm -hmm. outsourced that, so it's nostalgia in. It's a fake nostalgia or a misguided nostalgia in several respects. One of them is not only did that now, not only did the, the territory never exist, to use the map territory analogy, not only did that territory of the authentic never exist, but also um, the, the truth is our outrage is misplaced because it, you know we should have been outraged 20 years ago or at least 10 years ago. When we began outsourcing in a major way, our musical choices, our our decisions in most aspects of our lives, especially in in the relation to art and entertainment and politics. Right. I I think to look at this through the writing lens, though, because again, we got to be careful yeah. we don't spiral right. out. Right. Is right. somehow I think that the outrage centers around the idea that having a chatbot do something disrupts a pure process of writing. Thank you. Thank you. Right? That's what I was trying to and say. Thank you. You it's, said and, and so the outrage is that I can typed my I can type my prompt into this and it will give me something back, right? And that that is impure somehow. And we look past the reality that we use Google or pick your search engine or pick your library database to harvest the information for us. We use other tools and mechanisms to create works cited pages for us. Right. While we're doing this, we're using a keyboard to type out the letters and save it for us, which is the updated version Absolutely. of writing it by pen, which is the right. updated version of the quill. Right. Like there's right. been this continual right. process. Right. Each is a disruption that takes us, you know, okay, fine. The the point that Baudrillard makes, I thought that was really interesting about this, is that these and he talks about this with Vietnam and about the United States only being able to pull out of Vietnam once we knew that Vietnam would be predictable without us there, that we have this disruption and mm -hmm. we can only end the disruption once the disruption is able to drop back into the simulacra, right? That once, mm -hmm. it's, once it's able to be replicated um, faithfully. You have to have that that moment of achieved <clears throat> seriality or of repetition before. That's, that's a good way of yeah. putting it. And so basically, I think the argument around AI is like, oh my God, it's this massive disruption because it hasn't been able, that we, we've not been able to reabsorb it into the simulation um, as we have other disruptions that we now don't see that we think of as, uh, you know, I'll use the word pure again, right? That somehow right. have become a part of the purity of whatever process it is that we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Really, I don't like that word, but I guess it's the one that we're rolling with here. Well, what word don't you like? The purity, like this. I, but, uh, but no, I think, I, think the, <clears throat> I think you have to use that word, Michael, actually, because what we're talking about is an affect, right? We're talking about this affect of nostalgia. If you if you're not thinking in these binary terms, actually the binary terms are what makes this fictional. It's what right. makes this force fictional. Because so when you're saying I don't like those terms, what you mean is you're realizing the fictional, fictive nature of the term. But that's that's I think the point of this argument. I have to say I'm uh, you know just thinking about it. Um, so I made two mistakes uh, that I used AI to help me correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not ironic, you know, what's the, there's the irony right there. Well, it, it's, I think we're, we're bathed in it, to be honest with you. I mean, we're, what, what is. It proves how much we're immersed in it, which is why the nostalgia argument is finally not an effective, not a, not a, uh, uh, not a positive argument. It doesn't get us anywhere to advance that argument. Well, it's frustrating really to realize that we've just spent the past hour having this discussion over things that don't even really exist.
Well, there's that. That okay. Now there is where we get this. Okay, you're getting my uh, realist um, um, heebie-jeebies up again with that statement. But I take your previous point. <clears throat> well, it's 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 a lot. I think that the you know my the the takeaway from this, if we could, and there's so much um, that's still in here. I I think the problem with Baudrillard is again speaking personally that. You know, I want to look at this in terms of concrete material examples. And so when you say that this thing is a fiction or that this thing is not real or that we can't distinguish one one thing from another, and he has numerous examples that it sort of, you know, raises some eyebrows like that. That's this. It's tempting to look at this as one of those really really extreme theoretical mm -hmm. positions. Um, but I think that his argument really becomes much more clear when we look at it through maybe a technological lens and we realize how um, these are perceptions that we have that are informed by a particular position. And I think the easiest way of maybe giving some credence to what he's saying is to think about one generation's lived experience versus a prior generation's experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like my world is very, very different than the world that my parents came up in. And my children's world is going to be completely unrecognizable to the world that my grandparents grew up in, despite right. the fact that the material realities of these worlds are the same, you know, like that we're, we're, it, it's, they're identical mm -hmm. physically, Right. Mm -hmm. But the perception of things is profoundly different. And the way that we understand is profoundly different because what he's talking about with Disney or Watergate, these are interpretations mm -hmm. and the things that we choose to believe are influenced essentially by the way that we configure our understandings. Mm -hmm. And it's not so, not so concrete. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a wonderful takeaway. Uh, I like your, I very much like your example, the generational differences. I think I'm, you know, while you were talking, I think I, came with my takeaway. Um, I feel that I've been very confused in this episode, but I think I want to let it stand because as you were talking, I realized, I think I'm able to say a little bit more concisely why I don't like this essay, but I need this essay. So let me use that as my takeaway. That's good. Um, why don't I like this essay? It's precisely, um, you began your discourse about the generations and mentioning this, and it's precisely why why this essay gives, I talked about the heebie-jeebies and not liking it. That's just a way of saying that this essay does make me very defensive. I come to this essay and read it with a lot of resistances. And I think all the resistances that I have to the argument have to do with one thing. It's, I always read his arguments, especially the argument that you were reading about, the initial argument about uh, Watergate, where he, to me, blithely collapses the difference between political critique and other, other ways of perception. That gets me upset. Why does that make me upset? It makes me upset because in the same way that he makes me upset throughout the essay, he is... He's emphasizing the ways in which I have no agency and that you have no agency. So that's the negative thing. Like all the confused things I've been spouting, it really comes down to this, that he is reminding me of the ways I don't have agency and mm -hmm. I don't like that. And I always want to create arguments or counter arguments. So I said two things. I said, I don't like this essay. Um, and so I just spoke for that poll. I like but that. But then why the do I need th things? Yeah. Um, now I'm going to say, I'm going to end by saying why I need this essay. Why I need this essay is all the other things that you've been very patiently expounding, Michael. Because when we think about, when we try to describe the processes, when we try to think about how uh, to use the most recent example you gave, to use that example of uh, how material world doesn't change, but then conceptually it's completely changed. 
between generations. When we think about specific moments of controversy about that occur in different ships, a different epoch, you know, that that accompany different shifts in technology. I need Baudrillard to help me understand that and to see that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't like this essay, but why I feel that we need it. And I especially need it. Yeah, I like that. I, th- I, th- I think that's right. Um, and I get that. If you look at this in terms of him saying, basically, you have no control. You are really responding. You think you're responding to fiction. But you're not. But yeah. you're not. You're yeah. just sort of there. And, you know, I, I'm... I, I think it's an easy argument to disagree with, but like you, I think it's it, it's it's a useful it's a useful tool in the toolbox. To, it's to a I mean it, it's not even I mean the more I talk about it and you talk about it and I think about it, I, it's like I end up thinking this is just totally necessary. It's like you know, media studies needs this kind of argument to be without this kind of argument we can't really describe these moments of controversy and change that you're talking about Mm -hmm. all right well barry i enjoyed the discussion don't know if we went anywhere (laughs) but i don't know if we can (laughs) we went nowhere we went nowhere but we can go nowhere and on that dispiriting moment it's not dispiriting it just is it It just just is is. my call it just listen i hope that you uh Enjoy yourself this week, and I will look forward to (laughs) picking this up in the same place, which will feel different somehow with what we do next. I agree. I agree. Thank you, Michael. Thanks very much for the discussion. All right, Barry. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.